Hello, welcome to episode three of Bella Ciao, the only place for music, chat and interview with a hard left agenda on Lee Student Radio. Aboard the good ship Bella Ciao today we have, as ever, Liam Cook. Hello Liam. Hiya. We've got Helena Navaretta Plana. Hello, good pronouncing of my family name. Thank you very much. <laughs> Jake Woods in the house. Hello. And joining us as guests today we have academic, activist, author, member of Plan C, Momentum and Acorn, and most importantly, a fan of the greatest football team in the world, Leeds United. Three. <laughs> We've got Kia Mil- Milburn in the house. Hello there. Hello everybody. How's everyone's week been? What's jumped out to you in the last fortnight since we've been in the studio? Liam, anything? Anything of note? Um, no. Uh, it's been, you know, I'm, I feel I'm on top form this week. Uh, yeah. less, stu- less stuff's cut from this one. That's my fingers crossed. Yeah, yeah. Good yeah, stuff, yeah. good stuff. What about, what about work? Anything, uncovered any conspiracies uh, there? Well, I've been... Uh, okay, so uh, as people who regularly listen, listen to the show will know, I'm a very loyal um, company man at Capita. Um, uh, the best call centre provider in the Greater Leeds area. Capita! Yeah. <laughs> Give me a C! <laughs> um, uh, do you want me to tell the thing about how capital caused, caused the Windrush go, crisis? Go for it, go uh, for it. This is the most... This, by the way, this is satire and parody, so we can't get sued. Uh, no, it's in The Guardian, it's <laughs> fine. Just, just, um, uh, so, so capital caused the Windrush crisis because they were given the contract uh, by the Home Office to um, seek out people who'd overstayed their visas and people who were in the country illegally. Uh, but the Home Office gave them a specific benefit where they would get a 2.5% um, bonus if they deported a certain number of migrants. And so they got to the end of the list of people that they'd sort of gathered through various weird, nefarious intelligence gathering services. And um, they realised that that, the list of people that they had to deport wasn't long enough to to get the 2.5% bonus. Mm -hmm. And so they just kept going down it until they got to the point where they were deporting people who'd been in this country um, only since they were like one or two years old. And that's why Windrush happened, is for a 2.5% bonus on their annual contract. Poor Amber Rudd. Everyone was hating on her, I but know. it was all Capita's fault. Yeah. Apologise <laughs> to Amber Rudd. She's back now. She's back with a vengeance. All is forgiven, apparently. Um, so, yeah, there you go. Um, if you had any other reasons to, you know, to hate Capita, other than Samsung's poor customer service, which I'm happy to represent. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Liam. Uh, Jake, I believe you've started a new job. Uh, yes, I have. Discussed on the last show. Yeah, so basically that job is doing admin for a cleaning company. Yeah. Um, I essentially do things like the payroll and all of yeah. that. How is it? Uh, it's very, very dull. Okay, capitalism um, still bad? Uh, capitalism is still terrible. Uh, okay. My previous financial services job, you know, it, it was terrible and I knew it was terrible, but it was all in this kind of abstract plane. Mm. But now when I have, you know, migrant workers ringing me up saying that, you know, they haven't been paid and stuff, you really see it, you know, oh, you really dear. feel it. Literally. Do you wow. pay them? Uh, I do. Yeah, that is my thing. Well done. Nice one. 
Okay, well, I think we'll uh, kick things off, as is tradition, with a song. And I think we'll go with Nina Simone with a song written in the aftermath of the death of Martin Luther King. This is Why by Nina Simone. All right, that was Nina Simone with Why, her song dedicated to Martin Luther King. This is Bella Chow on Lee Student Radio. Um, Helena, I believe you had something to say about the youth strike for climate. That yeah. Occurred. Last week, you were mm-hmm. there? Were you there? Yeah, last Friday I went to the Leeds Youth Climate Strike. Um, it was really big, I think, in, in the thousands, so it was really, really successful. But I think across the country what we saw is that a lot of kids are ready to strike and mobilise for this issue. I feel like climate change is, is such a such a uniting thread. It, it goes across so many important things. It is clearly like a, a class issue, but it is also an issue of migrant justice and it is also an issue of, of post-colonial justice. And I think it's really important that the left are now stepping up and recuperating uh, climate politics as something fundamental to to the left project, and there's been the launch of the whole um, of the whole Green New Deal grassroots labour campaign, yeah, yeah, which yeah, I think yeah. is a, is a really good step um, in that direction. And yeah, I think it's it's a um, it's an issue which is uh, quintessential quintessentially about the youth because it is it is clearly about the future of of younger people. So I think on that note, Kier will probably have a lot to say about how uh, climate change is, is fundamental in in just changing the whole political landscape yeah well it's it's interesting that um it's a youth strike that's happened Mm -hmm. Uh, so on one level it's interesting because there's been this like there's a whole series there's a tendency towards having political strikes so like there's a women's strike a few weeks ago which is huge all around the world then there's this climate strike which is a youth climate strike but it's like a political strike a strike around a political issue yeah obviously people are searching for ways in which they can exercise leverage like, and leaving school is quite an interesting one. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting one. And like, so one of the banners on the placards, which was circulating on social media after the climate, the youth climate strike, was some school kid holding up a banner saying, "Why the f? Ofcom rules, yeah." Nah, uh, go on. Why the, why the fuck are we studying <laughs> for a future which we won't have? Basically, exactly. which is great. And like you know, basically that it's a great leading to <laughs> my book that I'm here to put to to, to plug. So I've got a book coming out uh, next week sometime, the 29th of March, called Generation Left. And it's sort of like about, you know, why, why, why are young people moving to the left as a general tendency? Uh, and that's one of the reasons why, yeah. right? It's because, you know, we're preparing ourselves for a life. We, I'm not, I'm not part of the youth. I'm middle youth, let's put it that way. <laughs> but like uh, uh, young people are preparing themselves for a, for a life, right? Which is basically not going to happen. And climate change is the most obvious example of that. You know, basically, the whole insurance industry is bankrupt, right? It's based on the idea that all of the insurance industry's financial holdings are based on the idea that we're going to burn all of the fossil fuels in the ground. If you burn all the fossil fuels mm-hmm. on the ground, well, the basis for human civilization collapses. So, like, you know, that, that, that the whole of the financial s- system is based on this lie. Everyone knows it's a lie. Not everybody, but everybody, everybody works at a certain level in that industry knows this is true. And so it's like one of these consensual sort of lies. But that wasn't what I was going to say. I've just finished a novel called The Wall by John Lanchester. And it's basically, it's sort of like a post, it's like a sci-fi post, post um, deluge novel, right? So The Wall is like, The Wall is, The Wall in the book, in the title is The Wall that goes around what's left of the UK after climate change has happened and mm. sea levels have risen, etc. And like The Wall is there to keep 
the people inside the wall safe and to they, basically they kill anybody who comes near the wall basically although if you manage to get through the wall you can get some sort of um sub 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 level they, i think they call them helpers so you're basically a slave if you get through the law but you don't die i mean it sounds like a current border regime to be honest <laughs> yeah, well, all sci-fi is basically an extrapolation of yeah. existing trends that's why it's interesting you extrapolate existing trends to the to, to a sort of certain level beyond what it is now so you can understand the mm -hmm. present time but one of the other things in this book right is it's all about the breakdown the collapse of a sort of like generational knowledge transmission right so it's there's this big bit in the book where he says you know all of that stuff about where you, if your parent or your grandparent used to say you know um look you know i've lived this life i i know what's going on or whatever you know i know better because i've done it already and that, like all of that's broken it's mm. like no if you <laughs> if we're going to listen to you in fact the whole the thing goes look we're not listening to you you know if you want us to listen to you, time travel back before the world was fucked up. <laughs> and uh, Ofcom rules um, uh, before the world was messed up. And then come back and then I'll listen to you, basically. And so I was, you read that and then like um, it immediately made me think about the uh, so this U.S. Senator Diane Feinstein. Did anyone see that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. That was heartbreaking. Yeah. Uh, a load of school children came in to say, please, please, please do something about climate change. Right. Diane Feinstein treats them with disdain and says, uh, uh, look, I, you know, I've been doing this for 30 years. I know what I, I'm doing, you know. Mm, and obviously that makes you think, no. Like in that 30 years, right, that 30 years, that, that takes you back to like what, 1989 or something like that. Is that 30 years? Like that, yeah. <laughs> 1988 is the first sort of international agreement which recognised that climate change was happening, right? So in that time, sitting that last 30 years, it's definitely true that, uh, you know, so basically since 2000, half of the of the carbon that's ever been emitted in the 200,000 years of human existence has been emitted since 2000. So you, the, the vast majority of carbon has been emitted in Diane Feinstein's 30-year rule <laughs> at a time when everybody knew what its effects were, right? So it's like, that is broken, yeah. right? Everything you've done is Diane Feinstein has been a literally a catastrophic rain, right? Definitely. All of your lessons about like how things work is over, kaput. I mean, like no one should listen to you. I think she must be like a comrade. Like that moment was so useful. <laughs> yeah. Like you couldn't have had a more like laid bare. Like this is what they're secretly. I mean, you know, yeah, she came in 1989. I think she might be sort of like a Soviet sleeper who just never got switched off. Yeah, you know? the Americans, the Americans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, you could, couldn't have a more useful moment. You've literally got young, fresh-faced children just getting told to respect their elders. You know, and not yeah. worry about climate change. Amazing. But, but it's also true that, like, basically, we're all sort of relatively climate change deniers. Yeah, like, at some level, yeah. Yeah, on, yeah because it's almost impossible to function. Yeah. On, no, it's, but it's, yeah, like, yeah, it's yeah. very hard to function most of the time with that knowledge of the, the level of crisis we've faced. Mm. Like, like, can I tell your listeners a horrendous secret? Go on. You're all going to die! <laughs> right. We all know this, but you don't go around thinking about it in the front of your head in front of your face you push it behind your ear like where it's just out of sight do you know what i mean otherwise you couldn't function could you and that's yeah. basically what people do with climate change that is really depressing do you have something a bit more hopeful about <laughs> how well, we might be able to change well, you're all gonna live for a little bit longer <laughs> no well yeah basic well look this is the absolute truth right this is the this is the truth uh, if you do not believe in 
a level of transformation of society that's only ever been seen before in wartime or in revolutions, right? If you don't believe that's the prospect, that's what we're going to have to do over the next 20 to 25 years. I don't know why I chose 25 rather than 30. Anyway, in, in the near future, then you are a scientific dissident, right? So don't come to me with a political argument against that, right? You have to go, you have to go and write climate science journal articles, persuade the scientific consensus that, that it's wrong. It's not a political argument, right? If you think that, like, if so the independent group, for instance, right? right they are fucking genocidal. Yeah. Right? That yeah. is the consequence of, like, keep things the same as they are. You're a genocidal maniac, right? <laughs> That's just it. If you're yeah. not a revolutionary... Mm. So the two prospects in front of us are uh, a fascist solution to climate change, which is what the wall is, right? You surround the... You know, you basically... Which which becomes more and more likely, actually, right? Like, the, the worse climate change well, it's gets... Happening. It's, it's yeah. literally happening. Well, yeah. yeah, I mean, that's it. Bolsonaro, Trump, you know, uh, Salvini. Yeah, that... But it's and that, it's like... was in the, in the um, New Zealand mass shooter uh, manifesto. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. There was a lot of that, actually. There was mm. a lot of, like, weird eco-fascism that basically blames climate change on a surplus of population caused, yeah. caused by the global south. So, yeah, it is I mean, gaining a lot of traction. I mean, it's deep-rooted in ecological thinking, actually, yeah. that, mm. that Malthusian... Mm -hmm. That uh, Malthusian idea. Mm -hmm. so, so, well, like, basically, that that is the and the, the difficult thing is the the worse climate change gets, the harder it is to get a universal solution to climate change, mm -hmm. and that's what you need. And so, that, so these are the two things: fascist solution to climate change or democracy, right? Because democracy means everybody's interests get attended to. Do you know what I mean? And mm -hmm. that's the problem now: is that no, I mean we're not all in it together. So, you know, if you've got lots of resources, you can protect yourself against the impact of climate change. If you have no resources, you're going to get it, basically. So there's one solution. It's a fascist solution. Group together with people who've got resources. The other one is, you know, everybody's interests count equally and we all have to come up with a collective solution to climate change. So, that, so basically, the market is the opposite of that. The market is, if you've got money, your interests will be met, will be met more than the people who have got less money. That's what the market is. Mm. The market is fascism, people. <laughs> <laughs> one, one of the things that's really interesting is I, I was talking to a friend of mine who has a very unfortunately liberal Twitter timeline and has said that all of the people who are like directly opposed to Jeremy Corbyn and the people who might have been marching today are all having this massive existential crisis about c climate change. And it is one of the things you can see is that like a lot of the liberal commentators have these like this like deep and it's aimless fear of the great spectre of climate change but have no way of linking together the political causes that they support, like support for the, the EU and especially the sort of like the marketization that comes with it and a hatred for Jeremy Corbyn and the sort of support for the centrist um, establishment. And they don't have any way of linking that with the existential dread of climate change. And that's sort of just our job, isn't it? I think, I think a lot of the liberal kind of idea of climate change is like a failure of logic and reason and enlightenment mm. rationality. It's like, if only we could sit down as like rational individuals and like hash it out or whatever, you know, and like, you know, along sort of, you know, get rid of sort of... Democracy is like the opposite of that, you know, like, they, you know, they don't want the, the demos, you know, the people to invade, intervene in that. They want the, the clever people to sit down. It's a technocratic mm. process. Yeah, absolutely, them, and that's, yeah. that's, that's objection to... to, the, to Corbyn as well, you know, mm. it's letting the passions and the people run wild over, you know, sensible, cold, enlightenment rationality. It's the same reason they support the EU. You know, to, to them, those things aren't in contradiction at all. To them, it's the same thing. You know, what we need is adults in the room. What we need is people who know what they're doing to sit down and mm. work it out. And, and anything that's vaguely populist or democratic or anything is, is, is a barrier to that, you know? So is, it, is the... 
is like a, a sort of concrete campaigning solution to try to really focus on the connection between climate change and the sort of expansive nature of capitalism. The fact that capitalism is constantly trying to expand past all borders, trying to use up all of the materials in the earth, and just hammering that point home that the longer that you continue to support Alistair Campbell and the various market ideologues, then that is the direct cause of climate change and in no way a solution. Yeah, I'd probably put it in a slightly different way, but like, like basically capitalism leads to hierarchy that's what it is yeah. it's like you know basically the concentration of of resources so that you know people who've got those resources their interests count above everybody else's that's what a market is that's what capital is so they've got that on one hand and you've got democracy on the other hand yeah democracy is like collective organization uh, in order to so that everybody's interests count as much as anybody else's right mm. yeah so those two things are, are, are in opposition they're held in sort of tension and like you know, you know before the economic crisis of 2008 there was this you know the whole it seems it seems preposterous now but the idea was that capitalism automatically produced democracy right there was this golden arches theory of democracy which is like nowhere no two countries that ever that had a mcdonald's ever went to war uh, and it's because they had free and open if you had a mcdonald's you had free and open mm. market economy and that would bring liberal sensibilities right I mean, it, it, I think it broke down in the Kosovo War. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It's absolutely preposterous now. It's absolutely a fucking joke. Yeah, so I, that's, that's one way I think you can think, think through the problem of climate change, right? It's the problem of who has power, basically. Yeah. Who has power and whose knees are going to get attended to? Who's going to be cared for, basically? <laughs> whose knees are going to get attended to? The, the IRA <laughs> method of... <laughs> you don't stop burning fossil fuels, your knees will be... <laughs> well, yeah, only through to with a like a calcium or something like that. <laughs> right, so your book, Kia. Yes. What's, so... What's the basic premise? What's the problem that you're sort of... Oh, well, it's, no, it's nothing to do at. with climate change. I don't I know, know why I went on about that. Yeah. <laughs> no, but... <laughs> it's nothing to do with youth. No, no, but it, like, like, if we think about our time, we've got these two... We've got these two crises, and both of them have got a generational dynamic, right? So I've just talked about climate change. Like, this is this is huge problem that's going to face and dominate everybody's lives uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, and the other one is uh, an economic crisis that happened in 2008, etc. And the, the the way that economic crisis played out has meant that like young people have got a bad the bad end of the stick, basically. Uh, there's all sorts of reasons for it, right? But we could basically reduce it to a pretty obvious. Well, in fact, if we, let's go back to the 1980s. I'll take you back to the 1980s, right? Uh, the <laughs> 1980s, there were big shoulder pads. People were wearing shoulder pads and dresses, etc. Uh, Dallas was a, uh, a very big program on TV. Um, uh, and from the like, like early 1980s, wages in the UK, real wages or adjusted for inflation, are basically stagnated. They haven't really gone up. And if you look at like the proportion of national income that goes to wages rather than to to uh, rents or to profits, whatever. Like, basically, it's, it's shrunk or, or reduced in that time. Uh, in the US, wages have, have reduced. Real wages have gone down since that point. So how do, how do you maintain living standards in that, over that period? I mean, what, one of the reasons, one of the ways you can do it is because women go out to work, you have two income streams coming into a mm. nuclear family. But basically, the way people have increased their wealth is, is via ownership of assets. So this was a neoliberal deal. Your wages are not going to go up. You're going to have no control over the direction of society, right? But you can have access to free, free, free to very cheap credit, which will, which can increase with a couple of other diamonds, can increase your access to consumption, basically. And like the main way people had access to 
increased credit was uh, houses, right? So you could have credit to buy a house. I mean, pensions moving into stocks as well is a very big important point of this. Both of those basically, both of the both of the gains of both of those things fall to one generation basically. All of the, the increase in house prices goes massively up in the 1990s, early 2000s. Same with like pensions linked to stock. Young people are cut, cut out from that. There's no way. Sorry, everybody. I'm looking around. This you're not going to be owning a house, mm. right? Uh, that 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 future is blocked, right? So what's the consequence of that? The consequence is you see that young people are basically voting left and adopting left-wing ideas. Uh, the UK is an obvious example. The US, S Spain. Uh, you know, basically, it's not universal, right? You know, young people are voting far right in proportion to the rest of the population in, in a country such as Poland or something like that, or Eastern Europe for various reasons. But it's quite a robust trend, right, this thing. So in the 2017 election, for every 10 years older than 18 you are, you're 9% you're more likely to vote for the Conservatives. Mm. And it's basically, you know, it's like a cross, you know, the, so basically something like 68% like or perhaps even a bit higher than that of 18 to 24 year olds vote for Corbyn mm. and like 18 vote for the Tories. Reverse that and it's exactly the same for uh, over 65s, right? If you look at Bernie Sanders versus Clinton, it's more or less exactly the same pattern. And it's still support for Bernie Sanders in the late, in this round as well, is the, is the same thing. And it's a very, very, like, so it's this, this idea that young people have always been left wing, but like, that gap between the generations has not always been huge. So in the 2017 election, the gap between the youngest and oldest voters was like a 97 point gap in the, in the um, uh, 2015 election, I think it was just like 9% or something like that. It's just, so this is something which is like, it, it, it's historically unprecedented, this, this political generation gap between the young and the old, and it comes come across really, really, really quickly. So the answer must be that it must be related to 2008, the crisis, basically. Mm. Uh, yeah, that's, that's my book sort of looking yeah. at that, and that, but then it's sort of like looking at, okay, but why is it taking a left, okay, so young people are not gonna be particularly happy now, but why is it taking a left expression? And for that, you have to look at things such as, well, events, basically. Events like 2008, then 2011, which is like this... We should look at 2011, almost like people talk about 1968, do you know what I mean? Mm. Of like an event where like, there's huge... There's revolutions around the world. Mm. There's social movements which look exactly very, very similar, taking exactly the same organisation and, 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 like, you know, repertoires in all sorts of countries, do you know what I mean? Mm. Uh, so there, you've got to have an explanation for that as well, do you know what I mean? So I, that, that's what happens in the book. I sort of look through that and work out what, and then I sort of end on how we bridge the generation gap, basically. Right. Okay. So we sort of touched on it there a little bit, but um, a common riposte to this sort of argument is that, oh, well, you know, we've been waiting for the sort of the... You, you know, demographics have been shifting towards progressive politics since, like, the Second World War, and, you know, every generation has looked at... You know the youth and thought, oh well, once you know, once these become the majority, we're going to be okay. We're going to reach a kind of you know liberal or socialist kind of consensus. What makes this different to that? Yeah. In your view, or your argument different to the argument yeah, yeah, predicting yeah. that? That's like the Whig version of history, basically. That history bends towards progress, yeah. which is not true. It's like it takes class struggle to bend yeah. it towards progress. But okay, so so there's so so the like the opposite I, the opposite thing of like why are young people tending to vote left is that why are right people tending why are right people why are old people tending to vote right right and adopt right wing views 
And there's all sorts of people try to work out. There's a, there is a general pattern which has gone across the 20th century for that. And like people do it for all, they have so, all sorts of explanations. Like, like the more, probably the most common one would be something like brain plasticity, right? That your brain becomes less plastic as you get older. Uh, what do you mean by plastic there? Just to be clear. Less, uh, malleable? Oh, yeah, less malleable. Less, right. a, less able to take on new thoughts and new ideas. Yeah, yeah. Right? Uh, I actually think that's linked, that could well be linked. I don't know. I got, but that could well be linked to that. Like, what is the pattern of getting older? As you get older, you have less encounters with new experiences and new ideas. Mm. You basically, you know, you, you tend to become more isolated. You tend not to go out as much. You know, it's great I'm out now in the afternoon. I'd normally be, you know, in, in, in doing my knitting about now. But, uh, yeah, but you tend to have, you tend to have less new experiences. Obviously, right, with the, the first, when you're young, you have a lot more new experiences because you haven't done them before. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it could be that brain plasticity is just linked to the pattern of life that, I didn't really intend to talk about this. I don't know how I've gone to this. <laughs> okay, so, so it's... How does that relate to, like, a material analysis of, like, um saying that the reaction of young people towards radical politics comes precisely from the fact that we broadly have yeah. precarious jobs and we can see where our self-interest lies like with you know one of the main reasons why i how i try to sell corbyn to people um is that you you won't have any more student debt like yeah. he's going to write that off like yeah. it's, a, it's a direct material link which people i don't think if you're a middle-aged don't get that from corbyn yeah. because all you see is the potential rise in taxes and uh, uh, you know yeah so, so there's just like an economic answer to that, right? Which is that, um, so basically, what 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 are older generations most concerned with now? It is basically house prices, right? And and they've basically, so what's happened since two thousand and eight? Right? There's been a, there's been a trend. There's been a longer trend where where neoliberalism has just taken effect, and so working conditions and, and like life conditions have got harsher. Right, so that obviously that means the younger you are, you get the harsher end of that. Older people have have got jobs and pension rights, which are probably better than. But what's happened since two thousand and eight is uh, every policy has been about propping up the financial sector. Mm. So there's been trillions, like an ocean of free money has just been given to the financial sector. Most of that has worked its way to the pockets of the extremely globally wealthy, the the zero point one percent. But a side effect of that, right, is to keep asset prices high. So that's house prices and stock price, stock stock yeah. prices, uh, and so I think like basically a lot of a lot of older people, and we're actually talking quite old people here, right? So there was there was a there was a poll before Christmas which said that all that Labour had a twenty percent lead amongst under sixty five year olds of the working age population. They had a nine Labour had a nine percent lead amongst under seventy five. Sorry, a nine percent lead under seventy fives. And yet they were level pegging with the Tories because over 75s turn out more. Yeah. <laughs> right. So basically, I'm not saying that old people are, are, are like selfish or whatever. I think a lot of them are trapped, right? They're like, you know, when you're 75, what's your, what, what are you concerned with in a, in a sort of material sense? You're concerned with how am I going to pay for elder care? Mm. I can't rely on the state to provide me elder care. I've heard pretty horrific reports about like, you know, how elderly people are treated in, in, in by underpaid staff, etc. There's only one way I can guarantee that I'm going to be cared for in an old age, and that is to have house prices high, right? You are going to vote for that. And I'm sure lots of them are, th- are, 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 are semi, either fully or semi-aware that, like, they're voting against the interests of their younger relatives, who they love. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think it's also related to, like, 
how so but you have material interests right but we all have lots of different interests potential interests and you choose the interest or you tend to form an interest around something which seems to lead to a viable future right mm. uh, and for older people a viable future is linked to asset prices and house prices being high so and that means you're going to look to the right at the moment so that leads and falls into all sorts of like nostalgic sort of conceptions of the future etc let's we'll have the future return to some imaginary past etc younger people uh you know the debt that they, you, that you have to take on like student debt right that is not seen to lead to a viable future anymore mm. right you know it seems to so People can take you can take on debt and it, it can feel almost like freedom, really. Believe me, because it can be like I'll take on this debt, but I'll have greater freedom in the future. Mm. That's not a viable future. So, that debt, right, which you can't get out of just because it doesn't seem viable, that debt seems like an imposition, like it seems like unfreedom mm. to lots of young people, right? And so, somebody who's saying we can get we can sort of break with those sorts of bonds of unfreedom are basically on the left. All right, I think we'll go to a song now. You've brought in a song for us today, haven't you, Keir? I did, didn't I? Would you, yeah. like to, would you like to introduce Can you remember what it was? Yeah. It's by Heaven17, that, that um, well-known political band from the 1980s. Now, they're not well-known for a political band, uh, and it's not Temptation. It's called uh, We Don't Need This Fascist Groove Thing from 1981. I only brought it in because it seems strangely relevant today. Hello. That was Heaven17 with We Don't Need This Fascist Groove Thing. You are listening to Bella Chow, the only place, in fact, on Lee Student Radio, if you want some chat, some music and interview with a hard left agenda. We're joined by Keir Milburn today to talk about his new book, Generation Left. Um, just leading on from the last conversation then, um, you know, the, the argument you're making around sort of the, yeah, sorry, uh, generational, generation gaps politically could lead to a sort of an idea of, sort of intergenerational warfare, sort of young versus old. It's, you know, we need to wait for them to die off, maybe speed up their demise in order to sort of, you know, get to the point where we can be a, a sort of social majority. And the sort of boomer millennial fight, while mostly joking, is quite a common sort of meme on social media. So is that where your argument's pointing to? If not, you know, do you see that as a problem? And if, and if it is a problem, how do you intend to... Yeah, it's a yeah, it's a problem. That. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a problem. Like, well, basically, the parties are on about forty forty, and they've been stuck in that for ages. Like, Brexit's gonna mess that somehow. Mm. But yeah, it's a really big problem. Yeah, uh, 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 and as I said at the end, you know, I'm not saying that that older generations have got it good. They're trapped. Like, young people are trapped in these debt relations. Older people are trapped in their property owning relations. Do you know what I mean? And mm. uh, so, one of the problems. Is, so, basically, the root of conservative feeling, right? Is uh, it's linked to uh, private property ownership, fear of dispossession. Right? That's the, pro the uh, private property, right? Is it's rivalrous. Either I've got it or you've got it. So it always carries this fear of like somebody getting it off me. Who's going to get it off me? I don't know. It could be, it could be the blacks. It could be the working class, or it could be the young. Right? Mm. That's the root of conservative fear. Uh, and of course, like our, med our modern conception of adulthood is is based around the attributes of private property. Like even our, our, you know, love relationships have got, like, the character that they're formed around the character of, like, private property. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, well, you know, marriage, etc. Uh, but, you know, also, like, the, like, like, increasingly through the 20th century, but particularly since the 1980s, right, property, a property-owning democracy is the solution for conservatives to deal with the problem of mass suffrage. As soon as, as, soon as everybody gets the vote... Like, well, how do you 
stop people voting in their own interests, right? And you know, so basically, one of the one of the solutions to that is to is to, to disperse the ownership of, of of property, right? And and that sort of worked, but it stopped, hasn't it, for young people? Like, you're not going to be owning property. Sorry about this. Sorry to <laughs> not glum faces with these uh, landlords in waiting, lusting at me. Uh, no. Like basically, that's sort of broken for older, for young people, right? They're, 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 it's, it's unlikely that you're going to go on and young people are going to own property at the level of their parents' generation. So there's, there's different solutions to that. One solution would be, let's build loads more houses, let's, re, let's change the, the lending requirements for the financial sector, let's reopen this blocked path to adulthood, right? That, and if you do that, then you're in gener generational conflict. Right. If you build lots of new houses, right, what's going to happen to property prices? They're going to collapse, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the route. If you try to extend this sort of property model of, of adulthood to young people now, then that is you're into a generational conflict and you've basically got to take out the old. And they're quite numerical. They're not, <laughs> you know, they're, they're, big, they're big people, but they're out of shape. But there's lots <laughs> of them, right? Uh, so there's a different solution, which is, I think, uh, you form... Like adult, our conception of adulthood is just broken, right? Uh, let's reform our conception of adulthood around a different form of property, which is like the commons, basically. Because right? mm. the commons is non-rivalrous. I can have it, you can have it, we can negotiate how we share it, right? But it's a non-rivalrous form of property. If, if you have adulthood based around the idea of commons, that is it. That is kibosh on conservative politics, basically, because you don't have the fear of dispossession. So what does that mean in practice? Sorting out the digital commons, right? Getting rid of this mm. of, of platform capitalism. Mm. That's a, a straightforward, obvious way. And like the, the people in Barcelona and Como run run Barcelona just released this like very very sophisticated manifesto for how you would basically do the, go about that. Obviously, the next thing is you need housing co-ops, right? You need to to uh, uh, to collectivize housing. We probably need to start thinking about how you overcome the, this huge generational segregation around housing. I don't know where you all live. I imagine you live up in, you know, uh, Headingley Hyde Park. You know, uh, you know, basically, yeah, it's, it's just like a generational segregation thing. You know, and, you know older people are not going to live there. It's totally possible to have co-housing projects on a mass scale, which include all sorts of dynamics, including cross-generational. You know, there's lots of experiments about that. About you know, so basically, people will get re younger people will get reduced rents, or whatever, to the housing co-op if they do care work for the older people mm. in that. Right, all sorts of of ways you could sort of this could be made to be be real. So that's my longer term right. solution cool. to this problem. Basically, yeah, I mean that ties in really sort of quite nicely to what the question that I wanted to ask about. You know. In terms of strategy, when we look at the, the concept of generation left, it, it, it's definitely a real thing and you're definitely onto something. And when it comes to whether it be social movements or electoral politics, you know, you have to look at the fact that in terms of geographically, generation left is so rammed into these very small areas. When you walk around the city of Leeds, the average person in Leeds is so young. But then there's so many other towns yeah. around northern England where the average person is so old. And when it comes to... So the average age of, of a population of, a, of city areas is 10 years younger than the average age of small towns. Right? Oh, wow. So at the back there. Wow. Yeah. Yeah and, yeah, and it seems like you get... You get these really dynamic social movements in. So, for example, let's you know, let's look at student areas like Hyde Park, Headingley, and Leeds. We've got a really a vibrant sort of left-wing socialist scene around here. Where I went to uni in Brighton, 
uh, around the kind of Elm Grove area, there's really, again, a vibrant, dynamic political scene. You only have to go a couple of miles down the road to find people who've had absolutely no con connection with that whatsoever. And when you have this kind of big cultural difference, this question of intergenerational warfare, it's like, how, how do we have these conversations with people from the other side of that kind of generational political divide when yeah. we're, we're you know, as young people, we're kind of in these kind of echo chambers that are largely facilitated by the expansion of the university system, things like that, by, you know, the, the development of these, you know, big student communities, you know, strategically, how do we move out of that, you know, rather than just sticking to the base camp of the university area, moving out into those post-industrial towns, how do we have those conversations? What forms of activism do we do to kind of, get over that kind of that geographical element to the generational divide yeah it's a really big question because like you know there's this sort of like city to small towns mm. like that would broadly map into like you know the sort of brexit debate yeah yeah yeah. Sort of yeah absolutely yeah no it's, it's so so there's, there's a couple of different ways into that like it, i got some data the other day from the world transforms you know the like which is like a political festival that mm. takes place around the labor party uh, so i got some data about like age ranges and that and it all of the age ranges of participants group around you know 18 to 25 perhaps a bit late, a bit older than that and then over 65s mm. big spikes on both of those and like you know you if you're involved with left movements you'll know that like actually it's like young people and older people are that are, tend to be like the activists in that mm. and in fact people from my generation are the ones who are missing right mm. well they're on, the, they're on the march today aren't they they're on the <laughs> yeah they might well be actually yeah 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 it would be wouldn't it be great to get some sort of generational age cohort analysis of the, yeah. the marches i would uh, love it if the young people and the old people all came together to kill my parents that would be <laughs> absolutely ideal Let, let's put it this way though right so one of my big fears <laughs> One of my big fears is that young people could be tempted away from the left, right, by the third way generation, yeah. right, which is the, the third way generation is people who are, you know, in their 40s into 50s, basically, something like that. Uh, the third way, like, so my idea of generations isn't that you have like 20 year gaps of, you know, you have, you have like baby boomers, then you have uh, Generation X, then you have millennials, right? Like, we use that a lot, but actually it makes no sense, does it? Well, well where does one generation start and another one end, mm. right? Mm. I've got an, it, it works with the baby boomers because an event formed the baby boomers, the end yeah. of the Second World War. Mm. Everyone came back and they had a lot of sex and birth rates boomed. And that cohort was massive until the introduction of the conceptive pill, right, on which birth rates dropped off. So every generation after that, it, it, it's just like some sort of like echo of the boomers. Do you know what I mean? Well, the boomers going to die soon. That concept of generation is going to go. Right? It doesn't make sense, that thing. So where, my idea of a political generation is that they form around key political events, which yeah. like cramp or expand what seems politically possible. So what mm. formed what formed the, the political... Uh, uh, um, I came to Leeds University in 1989 just to help myself. Mm -hmm. right? So that's my political generation. What happens in 1989 is the fall of the Berlin Wall, right? Over the next couple of years after that, you get like the great doubling of the global labour force. So it's a one-off event in human mm. history. The, um, uh, the, the labour force available to global capital doubles within th two or three years. If you, you know, if you get a, if you double the supply of anything, like the price tanks, and that's basically what happened. Mm. Labour had no negotiating position. It, basically, the left, which had been forming for like 150 years and had reached a peak of strength in the 1970s, collapsed in you know the late 1980s just as i got into politics mm. um, <laughs> and, and uh, yeah so there's this huge gap uh in, right. in the middle do you know what i mean and that, that those are the people that uh, are not there well this is why you've got like 
Bernie Sanders and Ilan Omar and nothing in between. You know, you've got like yeah. Jeremy Corbyn and Laura Pitcock. Yeah. Nothing yeah. in between. Yeah. Just yeah, David yeah. Miliband, you know. Well, because yeah. like, um, uh, I follow a lot of comedians because I'm a masochist. And um, it, it, it's just. I had a Twitter spat with David Abedil, actually. Did David you really? Oh. Was wrote, it about? I wrote an article about. Um, <laughs> about it was sort of about Russell Brand and all that. And it was about like why, <laughs> why comedians were becoming political leaders at that point. Not necessarily left political leaders, but Beppe Grillo, right, who formed yeah, the Five yeah, Star yeah. Party. Arguably, arguably Trump. Like, I've got a Ukraine fan. In a very similar vein, yeah, I think, yeah. I, I, I do end on Trump, anyway, let's not get into that. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, but, it, but it, like, it's got a section about, um, about the cynicism of 90s comedians, right? And so it's like, okay, so you, if you believe, you know, so basically, which is like, a, a, it's like a, a curse on both your houses, mm. politics, yes. right? Right, and if both houses, are, if both political parties are sharing the, uh, sharing the same premises, a curse on both your houses works. As soon as you're not sharing the same premises, right? What you're saying is, you know, politicians are cynical. Uh, you know, um, they're just out for themselves. That's the common sense of the 1990s. Politics doesn't work. It doesn't do anything. So what happens when you have mass political engagement again, right? Right. There's a consensus to say politicians are all scum. But you can't say that to like ordinary people who suddenly got infused. So what do you do with them? So you have to just say they're naive. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's the structure of, of irony, basically. You know, irony constructs two audiences, right? You construct a notional naive audience, and then you construct a knowing audience who understand the double meaning, but the comedy comes from complicity with the comedian and the knowing audience yes. about the naive audience. So basically, the reaction to people who are politically infused is they become the naive audience in the minds of David Baddiel, right, etc. And so how was Russell Brand treated as like this naive guy who doesn't know about politics? That's exactly what he's that's what the Jeremy um, Paxman interview is. Mm. You know, oh, you're such a naive, you're a shallow person, he says to him. Anyway, well, I made this argument. Yeah. I tweeted to David Baddiel, guess what he tweeted back to me? Park life. Oh, right. Yeah. That was their, their own on Russell Brand, wasn't it? That yeah. And it's like, I rest my fucking case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You liberal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I, what I, I found really interesting, um, sort of like observing all of these um, centrist comedians, it's particularly that, it's about the relationship with Tony Blair, is that they can only remember Tony Blair as a... As a, a they have like their sort of libidinal memory of him is one of pure hope. And I think that what makes our generation so good is that like my first political memory was the iraq war i i can't remember a time before hating tony blair and that is the sort of that is the the purest kernel of my politics is that if there's anybody i hate it's tony blair and all of his acolytes and i think that that's that's the one thing that's really it, the, the the odd thing about the guardian messaging about this march today um for the second referendum is i keep seeing them saying oh young people really hate brexit you know there's a gr group of students in bristol and they all absolutely despise brexit but the only people that they can find to interview for that are 30 to 60 year olds all of whom grew up around the age of Clinton and Blair. Mitch Ben and so on. And they don't really realise that the majority of the people that I know in the sort of Labour left uh, born in the mid to late 90s are actually growing more and more no deal Brexit no. as the day goes on because of this pure memory of hating um, new Labour centrism uh, uh, can I can I tell a quick Ukraine fact um, about about um, comedians becoming political leaders? Yes, go on. Yeah, 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 yeah. this is so good. It's so good. Um, 
so in 2015, um, there was uh, on U- Ukrainian Netflix, there was a comedy show called Servant of the People about a teacher that became the president of Ukraine and got rid of all of the bad policies and told all the bureaucrats to just bog off. Um, and in uh, the Ukrainian election, which is happening in less than a week, um, the main actor from that show has formed a political party called the Servant of the People Party and is currently miles ahead of the sitting president in the polls. Oh, wow. Um, I'm, I'm assuming they're going to be pretty far right, are they? Yeah, yeah, backed oh, by... I mean, everyone, everyone is going to be in <laughs> Not my girlfriend. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, no, backed by, backed by the oligarchs. But, I, yeah... I came can... across some... I go running out uh, in West Leeds, right, on Tong, uh, and I came across some Azov graffiti, yeah. which is, like, this far right... I, I was like, what the... What's Azov? Azov is, like, a far right... Um, uh, They're militia. Brigade, militia, yeah. you know, right, so they'll okay, be like yeah. really Nazis. Like international Nazis go there to get trained up. Right. It's on like it's on this little bit of a post in the middle of the countryside out by Tong somewhere. There's a fantastic Have you vandalized yeah, it? Anymore, Have you written something? <laughs> There's a really fantastic um, Vice documentary, which because Ukrainian Nazis, there are it's a, it is more complicated than you'd imagine, but in a sort of like hilarious way. Um, <laughs> so there's a really fantastic uh, video uh, Vice documentary into Azov where they like they had some asshole journalists go and follow them around, and um, they have the, on the on their t-shirt they have like a, a the black sun, you know, the neo-Nazi symbol, mm, yeah, yeah. and um, the interviewer asks the Azov um, soldier you do realise that that's like a neo-Nazi symbol and he goes oh come on we're liberals we like democracy everyone's got symbols it's um, funny funny story uh, uh, yeah that whole fascist takeover of Ukraine was a pro EU yeah, yeah. well, well so it's fascist on both sides FBPE yeah. follow back pro Nazis <laughs> Well, so this, this, um, uh, yes, there are Nazis on both sides. I'm not, I'm not pro-Putin. I've got to say that. Yeah. Well, interestingly, in U- in Ukraine, like, and this has uh, happened in the past few months, is that the uh, pro-EU Nazis and the pro-Russia Nazis have <laughs> finally world. decided to settle their differences aside and just be the Nazis. <laughs> um, so that's, a, that's quite a scary. We're going to get so dragged for this like unnuanced take on, on yeah. the Ukraine conflict. I can't wait. Well, it went over very good in Tong. When I... <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, so so, I think that's pretty much all we have time for today. Thank you, Kia. What about acid communism? I know, we didn't get onto that. Oh, we'll have to do a part two. Yeah, be back quick. Um, <laughs> Harry has been sitting in the background all this time. I believe you have a song pick. Would you like to introduce the next song that we're going to close the show with? Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know an awful lot about it, but it's by the amazingly named Demolition Group. <laughs> Um, and it's, yeah, some Yugoslavian dark wave from the <laughs> just, just before we What's go into called? that, we've got a, a couple of plugs that we've got to do. So, Kia, go. Yeah, well, I've got this book coming out, Generation <laughs> Left. I haven't mentioned it yet, right? But um, uh, I'm having a book launch uh, at the middle floor of Wharf Chambers yeah. in town. 16th of April, 7pm, please come along. Fantastic. Uh, I'm going to just repeat what I've said today, but I'll repeat it even more animated style, so you'll really yeah. enjoy it. And just after that, so that's a, a, a Momentum Leads event co-hosted with Plan C. Just after that, about a week after that, on the 24th of April, we've got James Meadway, uh, former economic advisor John McDonnell, currently writing a book on Corbynomics, and he's coming up to do a talk about socialist economics. Uh, you can find details of that on Facebook. Um, yeah, th- play that song.